You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Today is part two, uh, actually it's part three in our sermon series or teaching series called Parables, how Jesus used fiction to speak the truth. And today we're looking at the parable of the prodigal son found in Luke's gospel. And instead of reading, it's an entire chapter. Instead of setting up here and reading that whole chapter, I'm just gonna give you a quick synopsis of it. I feel like I have it pretty well memorized. And so uh, you probably do too. It's, it's a popular parable. Once upon a time, it's a good way to start a parable, right? Once upon a time, there was a rich man who had two sons, and the youngest came to him one day and said, Father, give me my inheritance now so that I may enjoy it in my youth. And the father decided, okay, let's, let's do that. He gave his youngest his share of the inheritance, and the son immediately packed up and left home and went abroad and spent his inheritance on wine, women, and song, and dissolute living. And it came to pass that he became poor. He used up all his money. And so he said to himself, what should I do now? He took a job as a farmhand feeding pigs. Every day he was feeding those pigs and thinking about how he can't stand living this way. And so he decided, I'm going to try to return home, but I'm not going to ask my father to take me back as his son. I feel like that that ship has sailed. So I'm going to ask my father if he would take me in as one of his servants, hire me as one of his servants. And so he makes his way home. And while he's still a long way off down the road, his father, in anticipation, of him returning one day is looking out the window and sees his son coming down the road and the father runs down the road to greet him and and embraces him with open arms before anything can be said before the son can repent and say father i've sinned against heaven and you etc etc before he can even say that the father embraces him welcomes him home tells one of his servants go get a, a robe from the house and a ring and put the ring on his finger and the robe on his back for my son who is dead is now alive my son that was lost is now found and the father brings him into the house and tells his servants you know slaughter the fatted calf and let's throw him a party and he does so and uh, the older brother is out in the field working being the dutiful older brother that he is, he hears the party in the house and sees the lights and the, and the dancing and calls one of the servants over and says, what's, what's going on at the house? And the servant tells him, your brother who we thought was dead is, is alive and he's returned home and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf and thrown him this big party and the older son becomes immediately angry, refuses to go inside the house the father learns of this and goes out to meet his eldest and says to him, come inside, you know, and what's, what's the matter? And his, his son says, you know, I've been here with you my whole life. I've been loyal and faithful and the dutiful older son, right? Never once have you thrown me a party like this. Never once have you given me even a young goat, he says, to party with my friends. It's a funny way to put it. But, uh... The father responds compassionately to his eldest and says, 
everything I have is yours. You're my son, and I love you, and, but your, your, your brother, we thought he was dead. He's found alive. He's, he's home now. We, we had to celebrate. Thus ends the parable of the prodigal son. Kester Bruin, a modern-day philosopher, theologian, and, and a friend of mine, he actually spoke here years ago, has a really cool take on this parable, a very, an alternative reading big surprise, right? Whereby it's ultimately a tragic tale about the son's failure to escape the grasp of his wealthy and powerful father. The son, the, the younger son, wanted to venture out on his own, right? He wanted to explore the world, to invent himself out there, to, to enjoy the world, enjoy his life. But in the end, he failed and had to return home in shame, and his father was all too willing take him back and to um, make it very hard for him ever to leave again by lavishing him with wealth again, right? Taking him in again. Wealth and luxury. And in a way, this is a timeless and universal story about a failure to launch, so to speak. A failure to grow up, a failure to leave home, to make oneself something in the world, to make a life of your own. In this way, it's kind of a tragic tale. Kester Bruin surmises, but one could also compare this story to the story or the journey of deconstruction that so many of us are familiar with. The prodigal son can be a metaphor for so many of us who have left the safe confines of our father's house, so to speak. We've left the safe confines of evangelicalism or conservative Christianity. We've left the faith of our father or our family. They see us now like prodigal sons and daughters, do they not? In their eyes, we're lost and wayward, we're rebellious. We've squandered the precious faith and the, and the precious values that they gave us as children. We've squandered it. We've squandered our spiritual inheritance, as it were, by becoming worldly or woke or progressive or even non-Christian. They, they wish we would come home and repent, be born again repent of our rebellious ways and, and take our place once again as dutiful children in the house of our Father, in evangelical Christianity. And let's admit, some do return home, because it's hard out there. It's hard living in exile, estranged from family. For me as a minister, there's a poll too, I admit. I could, I could probably make more money, <laughs> have a bigger church, have a, I don't know, more successful, in scare quotes, career if I had just stayed or returned to evangelicalism. Imagine the books I could write, you know, if I returned to evangelicalism. I was once a progressive, oh yes. I was once one of those woke, progressive Christians, but now I've learned the truth, and all of you who have deconstructed need to be like me. I could really probably sell some books, right? I mean, I haven't really been tempted. Let me, let me be very clear. This is not actually an active temptation. But I've thought about how much easier a career in ministry would be if I just returned home to my father's house, so to speak. But I think I'm better off as a prodigal, and I think you are too. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting. I, one must assume that Jesus identified with the prodigal son. I think he did. 
I mean, he was treated as a prodigal by the priests and the religious leaders of his day, who I think he is actually metaphorically talking about in the image of the older brother, like the dutiful older brother, who's judgmental of, of the lost and wayward son that the father's welcoming back, right? I think it's, I think the older brother is kind of a metaphor for perhaps the religious authorities. But Jesus was treated as a prodigal by the priests and the religious leaders, right? They, they, they condemned Jesus for his party lifestyle, for eating and drinking with sinners. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. And the story of Jesus is one of leaving behind his father in heaven, right? He gave up the wealth and the splendor and the glory and, of heaven. He left the streets of gold behind and the palaces and mansions of heaven in order to take up a paltry life here on earth, born a peasant, died a criminal, gave it up. For what? To party with us? To be with us? And the whole time he was alive, the whole time he was alive, he stood, or at least in his adult years, stood in stark contrast, or in, in stark opposition to the temple his father's house, he once referred to it as. He was treated by the temple as an outcast, and he was an outcast, and he was found among the poor. He must, he must have identified on some level with the prodigal son. How could he not? Certainly more, he identified with the prodigal son more than the older brother. Anyway, all that's interesting, and I like that reading of this parable, but that's not the reading I want to focus on mo most here today. I just wanted to mention it because <laughs> it's interesting and because that's what you can do with parables, right? Parables read us more than we read them, perhaps. You can look at these things a lot of different ways. That's the cool thing about them. But let's, let, let's just glance at the common interpretation of this parable for a moment. This is not where I want to take it, but the common interpretation, the traditional interpretation, is that this is a story about repentance and forgiveness. The father represents, of course, God in the story, and the disgruntled but faithful older brother, older son, are those religious folks who look down their noses in judgment at anyone who's gone astray. The prodigal son, therefore, is seen as anyone who has left the righteous path and now uh, wants to return, and, and how God is, is like a loving and gracious father who welcomes him back with open arms, despite what's happened. That's how it's usually interpreted. It's, that's not a bad story. That's not a bad take. But it's usually interpreted as a story of repentance and forgiveness. I think on a deeper level, however, this is a story about unconditional love, the unconditional love of God, and, and this is really what I think the story is really about. I think it's a story about how we, have, we are never actually estranged or separated from God or God's love. This is what the prodigal son realized in the end. Despite all of his travels, all, all of his time spent away, all of his so-called dissolute living, as he's walking home, his father runs to him and embraces him, no questions asked. Before he can utter a word of repentance, he is embraced. And this, the realization is that he was never actually estranged from his father. He was never outside his father's love. Didn't matter how many hundreds or thousands of miles he was away from his dad. 
His father still loved him and there was no alienation. Not really. Not in his father's eyes. The son's feelings of estrangement and distance were an illusion and a self-generated one at that. I take this to mean that the idea that we are separated from, from God, the absolute, ultimate reality, the divine, the one, the transcendent, whatever you want to call it, this idea that we are at some point in our life estranged or alienated from, from that. And we must therefore make amends to get back to the one, get reconnected. This is a lie. Maybe the worst lie found in religious circles. And it's one propagated by a lot of religious groups in order to scam, control, and otherwise exert power over people. Because the message is, you've got to come here, you got to listen to me, <laughs> you got to join this church, join this, this, this religion in order to get back home. You're a strange, you're an exile from God, we're told. In Christianity, we're told that the, the story is that the fall in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, our original ancestors, they sinned and betrayed God, they sinned against God, betrayed God, and in their original sin, and at, you know, as their offsprings, physically and spiritually, we inherited their sin guilt and their sin nature, we're told. And therefore, we are all born, by no choice of our own, we are born the enemies of God, estranged from God, and, and prodigal sons and daughters who must be restored through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and our own repentance. But that's not only a misreading of the text, I think, but also a story used to control, oppress, and exploit us. You don't need to be made at one with God. No atonement is necessary. That word atonement means to make at one. You don't need to be made at one with God because you are already and always one with God. As Scripture says, in Him we live and move and have our being. In God we live and move and have our being. Everything was created inside of God, not apart from God. Therefore, there is nothing outside the divine presence that fills everything in every way. Separation is utterly impossible. You are included, accepted, and full of the all-encompassing love of God, no matter what anyone tells you. You don't need me. You don't need a church to connect to that which you are always and forever always connected to. You only need to realize that and, and live into it. And perhaps that's what healthy spiritual communities do, like ours. They help us understand, explore, live into, and express our innate connection to the divine, the infinite, the absolute, ultimate reality, the one, the source, God, whatever you want to call it. Pick, pick a metaphor if you don't like one, choose another, it's fine. And yet feelings of separation and alienation persist. We feel that way sometimes. We, we cannot do away with them completely, it seems. Why? Freudian psychology and other schools of thought tell us that there is something universal about our sense of alienation and isolation as human beings. 
and our desire to return to a state of oneness or a state of wholeness. To, to be human is to feel a sense of lack. Is it not? You know, it's like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you know, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Everything has emptiness in it. Emptiness is a part of life. Lack is a part of life. And we go through life looking for that which will fill us up, make us whole, make us feel at one. The theory is that when we begin life in our mother's womb, we are in a state of oceanic oneness with her. And this is the Mother's Day portion of my talk today. <laughs> I knew I could tie it in. Then when we're born, we continue to experience this sense of total connection to her, right? By, by being held by her and cared for and fed from her body. The sense of connection remains even after we're born to some degree as, as a little baby, but slowly in early childhood, that sense of oceanic oneness and, and perfect connection begins to break down as we discover that her body and our body, they're separate bodies. And, and she has a life of her own, separate and distinct from us. She has, she has needs. She, she's her own person. She does other things. Her body is different from our body, and she's her own individual, and she's a subject. And I'm a subject. We're separated. This experience in early childhood can be, it's, it's theorized that it's actually pretty traumatic. We internalize it, it's, it's unconscious. And perhaps we never get over it, and so we go searching for the rest of our lives for something that will return us to that state of wholeness and oneness. And again, a lot of this is unconscious. We don't know that that's what we're up to. We hope to find that, that wholeness and oneness again in, in a relationship or in our work or in the acquisition of goods, consuming things, money, anything. And religion, of course, is also one of those things that people turn to often in the hopes of finding oneness and wholeness. And religion is too, too quick to promise it. In the sense of, if you just attend here, if you just join my religion, if you just, you know, pay, you know, tithe here, <laughs> and believe these things, adhere to this religion, follow this guru, join this yoga studio, whatever, we're, we're promised wholeness and oneness, but only if you know, we adhere to the right things and believe the right things. But here's the truth, I think. There's nothing to return to because you were never actually estranged or alienated in the first place. You are always and forever connected to the source of all life and being, to the source of infinite love. In a sense, the whole universe and cosmos is a womb. We should think of the universe and the cosmos as like a mother's womb. We are therefore never disconnected from our mother, mother nature as it were. Even in death, our bodies disintegrate and then reintegrate with her. And our energy and our consciousness, I think, reintegrate with the cosmic energy and cosmic consciousness that lies at the heart of reality with what we call God. At least I hope so. 
And I think that's ultimately a good story, and the best story. A story of oneness and wholeness, a story of connection. You are not estranged. You are not in exile. You are not unwhole. You are forever connected to the source of all life and being and the source of love. You are loved. You are accepted. You are connected. And, and to me, this relates so well to our journey here, our journey of deconstruction and reconstruction. To me, this means that even in our deconstruction, even in all of our traveling and exploring and questioning and changing and doubting, and we have always been inside the Father's love, the Mother's love, God's love which is to say that we've never left home. The illusion is that we've left. We're estranged, we're not. We've never really left home. We've always been connected to the source, the sacred, the divine, the transcendent, the one, whatever you wanna call it. To me, that's the good news. In other words, deconstruction doesn't have to be about, doesn't have to be about the complete destruction of our faith and spirituality, or the total loss of one's sense of connection to something spiritual or transcendent, deconstruction can really just be the dismantling and the doing away with the ideas and the beliefs and the stories that just don't work for us anymore. That's all it has to be. Deconstruction can really just be a refining and a purifying process, like refining gold in a furnace. It's heated up so that the impurities and the other elements are broken down and done away with so that we're left with something pure. I think for most of us, that's what deconstruction is, as opposed to something totally destructive, like the doing away with faith and spirituality entirely. But to be honest, I want to give space to both experiences here, because I think both are legit but I want to focus more on the latter. I want to focus more on this experience of deconstruction as a purifying or a, a refining process because I think that's more of what most of us experience and it's why we're still here, is it not? And I want to finish today and open it up. Well, we'll have the Lord's Supper here in a moment, but I, I want to finish today by reading this, this part of Psalm 139 which I really like, and I think expresses this idea of our innate and unbreakable connection to God. It reads, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my, my bed in the grave, oblivion, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover over me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. 
for darkness is as light to you. As we meditate this morning on this idea of our innate and eternal, infinite connection to God, the one, the source, ultimate reality, whatever you want to call it, as we meditate on that, let us receive the Lord's Supper, which I think is a powerful reminder of our connection, our unbreakable connection to God. This is my body. This is my blood, Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of our connection to him, our connection to God. Let's meditate on this now. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. to talk about the prodigal son today or about um oneness and our connection with god um that unbreakable connection and how religion lies to us makes us feel estranged or exile deconstruction reconstruction we touched on it all um yeah anybody have any questions or comments about that yeah Marcia. i'm going to put you on the spot you said that at the time that your first child and even the second, you wrote a letter. Can you tell us a little bit about why? Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Usually I save that one for Father's Day. But uh, you know what? It's good. <laughs> um, so when Lucy and Sophie were born, um, I've shared this story before. I wrote them each a letter um to give to them later on in life when they could actually read it and so that they would have a keepsake from me. And in that letter, I wrote it right around their first birthday to just tell them how much you just kind of record my early experience of them in the first year of life, but how I felt about it and how I love them and how that connection to my love, even if I'm dead and gone when they're 18 or 20, I mean, I, I probably won't be, um, but let's just, I, I wanted them throughout their life to hold on to that letter so that when, when they are feeling like I'm, distant or maybe I'm not around anymore, they will know that their dad loved them no matter what. And to have that letter, my hope is that they can turn to it at difficult times of life or just as a, as a reminder that they will always have me with them right here. And that my love for them knows no bounds, no matter what. And I can't save them. The point is, I can't save them from life's difficulties. I can't intervene and keep them from suffering. I don't have that power. But I can love them unconditionally, and I can let them know that. And maybe that will help them through the dark times, to know that their dad loved them. I don't know that does it for me. <laughs> you know? Um, 
and and uh that's what that that's why I wrote that letter and um that that to me is i guess i've I've used it before, and I didn't mean it as such when I wrote it, but I've used it before to, as an example you know when when Paul talks about in Romans eight, what can separate us from the love of God right can peril or sword or distress or famine or anything life throws at us, what can separate us from the love of God? He says nothing that doesn't mean. Paul didn't mean that to say, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to be put to the sword. He was talking to the Romans. They were being persecuted for their faith, right? Many of them were dying in the arena of being Christian, right? His point wasn't, God will intervene and save the day so that you don't have to suffer. No, his point is, even in all of our sufferings, nothing can separate us from the love of our Father. We are loved. We are connected to love. Eternally, that's a source of spiritual strength, I think. And I wanted, I wanted that for my daughters, and I want that for, even for us here. I want that for myself. I, I, you know, I've done away with this idea of personally believing in an all-powerful God, but I have not done away with the belief in a God of love and, and the belief in love itself and the power of that. And that's... That's the message. Anyway, thank you, Marsha. I don't want to continue talking, but what what does that spark for you? Does anybody else have any comments or questions? Yeah, Emily, would you pass that to Emily, please? I have like 872 things to say, but... Um, you just, numbered them all. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> I'm very organized. Um, so, A, I have an issue with the whole Adam and Eve situation because... It starts out with, A, that he blames the woman for why he messed up, didn't even take responsibility. And secondly, um, that creates us as broken people yeah. already, like out of the gate. And I think that that's sort of why the conservative way of looking at religion or organized religion, they constantly, and I remember going to these crazy churches you know the one where they bombed abortion clinics like that every single sunday was about saving souls saving broken people and i was always so confused and i kept like trying to find things wrong with myself to say like oh yeah i'm broken too but never once did i feel broken you know what i mean like i always kind of felt like okay which is also why none of it really made any sense to me that was my gut feeling going but I'm not broken. Why do I need to be saved from what? You know, and I've said this before, I never felt attacked by the devil, but if you're if you're out like the like the one son, you're broken, right? The other guy's not broken. He's at home, he's doing what he's supposed to do. When you're doing what you're supposed to do, you're not broken. So that's the first thing is just the whole Adam and Eve when people bring that up, I'm like, we're already broken people. You're already you're already manipulating us out of the gate, you know. Um, forgot the other thing, but I feel like I should end on the fact that, like, I know I bash my mom a lot in here, okay, because she's a human being and she needs that type of religion to make herself feel whole, and I accept that. Um, but she was able to break the cycle of what she was running away from with her mother, and me and not, me and my four siblings are capable of loving their children in a way that my mother, I don't think, ever felt love. And so I feel like, and she loved us that same way. 
That's it. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Emily. Thank you. Yeah. We hear you. Thank you. Yeah. She could feel that I had something to say. Wow. That was, a, she just looked at you and that's amazing. <laughs> she, was, it over actually, hand. she was like, I'm going to cry. I'm going to give the mic to someone, whoever I see first, wow. whoever yeah. makes eye contact with you me. You guys are good. All right, go ahead. Um, growing up in an evangelical church, I used to like this, this parable in a way because I was the good kid. And I related to that one where I was like, he's right, this is so not fair, you know? Um, and so I got it from the other side. Um, over the years though, that has shifted and I'm slowly now being able to shift my view of God to his primary characteristic being love versus judgment. And it's taking a long time. And um, and I read a book um, a number of years ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, back when I was still kind of in, in evangelicalism by um, Timothy Keller called The Prodigal God. Because the word prodigal, we have associated with meaning the one who's left, who's run away, but it really means someone who spends lavishly. That's the real definition of the word. And so he flips the parable, much like you just did, to the prodigal God, the God who, the father who gives lavishly. And that's what this father in the parable has done. He's given to his son when his son asks, his son goes and does whatever his son does. But he watches for his son. He loves his son, you know, all the way through. That never changes. He's looking for him. He sees him when he's coming. He runs to him and he continues to give to him lavishly. And um, it really flipped the model of that parable for me to be from the focus of repentance and forgiveness and salvation to God's love not changing based on what we're doing. He loves us and now adding the element of everything is in God. We're all in God all the time. It's the water we're swimming in. We just can't even see it most of the time because it's just there. And to to be able to kind of flip that perspective to um, the fact that God is the one giving lavishly all the time. And that doesn't mean that we don't suffer. Like you're saying, it just means that he still loves us, period. Life's hard and God loves you. <laughs> that's, make that into it. That's really good. Life's hard and God loves you. Yeah. No, that's good. Thanks, Anne. Um, I was going to say something in response to what you said. Um, you triggered a thought. Oh, just about how unfair this parable you know, can seem, right? Like the father just, it seems to be uh, a, what do they call it? Like a uh, a doormat, we would say today, right? Oh, you just gave this kid his inheritance and then he, he comes back after blowing it all. And now you're welcoming him back and you're giving him wealth and luxury. You take him back. I mean, again, I, I think the par those parables, if you look at all the one, if there is a common thread throughout all the parables, it's that they were meant to kind of shock and disturb and unsettle the audience, you know, to make you think like, 
This is, this is crazy. This, you're turning, you're advocating that we become doormats. You know, you know, this other parables do it too. You know, it's like we'll probably talk about it in this series, right? But the the uh, laborers in the vineyard given a full day's wage for working one hour. You know, that's horrifically unfair to you know people. But again, th- this idea, and then Jesus is, goes with you know, others of his teaching. You know, forgive your enemies, bless those who curse you. I mean, these ideas were meant to like shatter people's conceptions, create a break where a new reality could come forth, which is astonishing to me because you have evangelicals today that are deeply capitalistic and live in this meritocracy, you know, that you get what you deserve. Well, according to Jesus, you should be a doormat. You should, you should let people walk all over you. You know, somebody asks you for your coat, give them your tunic too. If they ask you to go one mile, you go two. Somebody asks to borrow money, you lend it to them and don't expect a return. Be okay with being taken advantage of. Now, I'm not telling you to do that personally. I'm, and I'm not even sure Jesus was trying to ethically teach those things. Like you need to be a doormat to be pleasing to God. I know. But the ideas were so radical and so unsettling that I think they were meant to create a break where a new understanding of life and reality could, could take place. But again, we, I think we need to read them for their shock value. They're meant to completely challenge our conceptions of fairness and what's right and good. And, and to err, if I may be so bold, to err on the side of unconditional love. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that was part of this. I love the parables for that reason. Yeah. Anyway, other, other thoughts, comments today? <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Well, we'll get out a little early for Mother's Day. Let's uh let's conclude as we always do by saying this benediction together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves as Christ did to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here. Happy Mother's Day for those who are celebrating.